0: Thanks guys so much for for sharing that Um, when the roses were coming on on home assignment uh, their their flight in uh, I think candy was like deathly sick and so um, you know we're praying for her to be able to make it right and um, praise the Lord to to see the whole family here and healthy and well is is a great blessing and can you turn to someone and, and ask them will you go to Japan can you ask them that? And as you ask that question, what if God was asking you, will you go to Japan? I don't know what the numbers are here, but one church for every 16,000 people in Japan, man, the harvest is so plentiful. And I wonder if for some of us who are here and have been learning about house churches and what the church and scripture look like, I wonder if some of us might be learning these things and experiencing these things in order that you might be called of God to go into a place where the harvest is maybe more, more abundant and the workers less uh, than they are here. Um, if God were calling you to go, would you respond with faith and obedience. I want to really encourage you with that as you hear from Jesse, and and again, encourage you to go back to the table and and speak with them and hear more of God's heart for Japan and what he's doing in in those areas. I think back to when I was maybe in college, a a young adult in my 20s, growing in the faith, and there would be you know, conversations within our, our Christian community about, oh, you know, this person and that person and this person is, um, she's such a great, like, worship leader or, you know what, he's such a great um, musician and whenever he sings, I, I really feel God's presence or this guy's a great disciple maker or this girl is the best small group leader I've ever met. I thought about, like, what what would I want people to say about me? Like, what do I want people within church to, to, to think about me? And um, I remember at... at that point in, in my life, like, the one thing I wanted, like, with all of my heart, I said, I don't want to be a great small group leader, a great teacher. I just want, I just want people to say, you know, that guy, um, he, he just loves Jesus. You know, he just loves Jesus with everything within him. Like, that's what I, that's what I wanted. And as I recall those days, and I think back on those days now, I feel like it, it, in a lot of ways, my, my, my focus in life has shifted away from that. And I say that to, uh, to my shame, I guess, um, because as I've gotten older, uh, there have been a lot of other things that, that began to like compete for supremacy in my heart with the love for God. You know, other things began to, to creep up. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good family man. I don't want to be a deadbeat. Uh, I want to be a good pastor. I want to be a good preacher. I want to be you know, all of these different things. And and they begin to, to, to crowd my heart out. And yeah, that desire to love Jesus and that love for Christ is still there. But but sometimes I have to dig deeper in order to find it. And I don't wanna be, I don't want to live that way. Like we We've been going through this series on an emotionally healthy spirituality, and the first thing that we talked about was Jesus tells us up front, like, here's what it means to win at the game of life. You want to win, like in in athletic competitions or in in movie making, you know, this has been in in the news. You want to be be great in the movie making industry, here's how, not by by making a lot of money, but you got to win an Oscar. That's how you know that you've made it. When it comes to athletics, you want to be the goat in your sport, the greatest of all time. Here's how you do it. You gotta, ha- you gotta have rings. You gotta win the championship. That's what it's all about. Right? That's the rubric, that's the metric by which these things are measured. Jesus says very clearly, you want to know how to be awesome at this thing called life. The most important thing, there's a lot of things that are good. To obey God, to study God, to serve God, to worship God, to, to set up chairs for God, to make food for God, to lead a house chairs. All these things are good. But when they asked him what's the most important thing, Jesus was very clear. He said, here's the most important thing. It's to love God, love God with everything within, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then, as a bonus, if that's happening, you're going to love your neighbor. Not just the neighbor you choose, but the neighbor God gives to you. Not only will you love them the way you think you ought to love them, but you'll love them as if they were yourself. Like, the things that you want for them Well, the things you want for yourself, you want for them. The things that I desire for my life and my family, I want for your life and for your family. The things that I want for myself, the job promotions that I want, the the, the financial security, the love for Christ that I want for myself, I want that even more, as much for you as I do for myself. That's what Jesus says it means to win at the game of life. But when you think about it, a lot of us don't get beneath the 10% that we see above the surface and never really get down to the 90% that's beneath the surface. Can I ask you a question? If you were to love God with not just a 10% that, that is visible, but the 90%, the totality of your being, if you love God with 100% of who you are, then would not our lives look radically different? If God said, hey, go to Japan, wouldn't we be on the next fl- plane to Japan if we love God with everything within it? Like, honestly, if God said do this, there would be no hesitation if we love Jesus with everything within us. If God said serve the church in this way, but I don't want to, if, if it's a love for Christ, 100%, if all of me loves Christ, then I would do whatever he said to do, Right? Like, I would not want to sin because we always act out according to our greatest desire at any moment in time. And if I'm always loving God with everything within me, then there would be no desire to sin. I just, everything about my life. And if I love my neighbor as much as I love myself, I would never gossip about anybody. I would never judge them. I would never be jealous of anybody else. I would never, I would always rejoice when someone rejoiced and if someone's having a hard day and they mourned, I would weep with them if I love them as much as I love myself. What percentage of your life then do you think is being activated to love God? Does that make sense? Because I can say, yeah, I love God with everything within me. But when it comes to it at a practical level, it doesn't. If I love God with everything, I'd always be thinking about him. I'd always be wanting to sing the songs of, of worship. I'd always want to be giving my life to him. I'd always want to be telling people about Jesus. If I really loved him with everything within me. So it causes me to ask, what's going on beneath the surface that keeps me from loving Jesus with everything within and that stifles a love in me that that blocks uh, the love of God from going outside of me to other people so that I can love them the way that I love myself? See, for the first four weeks here, we've been talking about the reality that there is something beneath the surface. And then the second thing that we've been seeing is how we can access the stuff beneath the surface. By listening to our emotions, by going back and journeying into our past and to see how we're affected by our past and how that shapes our future. We've been looking at things like this. Today, what I want to do is to dive a little bit deeper into kind of murky, muddy maybe not really welcomed waters, but what I want to do is I want to talk about how not only we can access what's beneath the surface, but how God wants to purify the stuff that's beneath the surface. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, and we're going to talk about something that is an experience that we're all going to face in life, but it's something that we don't want to face probably. It's the gift that nobody wants. Uh, the way that Peter Scazzaro calls it, he calls it the wall. It's the gift of a wall. Other places might call it different things. Uh, famous, uh, ancient, uh, classic church historian, St. John of the Cross, calls it the dark night of the soul. like Not like the Batman kind of dark night, but the dark night where the night seems like it lasts forever. And maybe some of you are in that place. I want to bring some some hope maybe, some encouragement, um, but some sobriety for sure. We're going to look at um, Luke chapter 7. We're going to read verses 18 through 23. But in the context, we're kind of reading about this man called John who was the baptizer. So that's what he did. He worked and his life was given to baptize people in order to say, hey, get yourself right because The Son of God is coming. The Messiah is coming. The one who was to come, the prophesied one is coming. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so get yourself ready for this. He was, John the Baptizer was Jesus' biggest cheerleader. He, He gave his life to letting people know that Jesus was coming. And what did it get him? It got him thrown in jail. And so in Luke chapter 7 verse 18 John is in jail, and he's wondering, man, did I, did I, was I following the right guy? This is what it says. John's disciples told him about all these things. What are these things? The things that Jesus was doing, miracles, healing, raising dead people. John's disciples came and told uh, John these things. Calling two of them, he he, he sent them to the Lord to ask, hey, but are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? In other words, have I given my life to the right one or was I mistaken? Is there someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, hey, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, hey, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is God's word. So what's happening? Two things, two thoughts about the wall. First thing, first thing, God brings every child of God to the wall. Okay? God brings every child of God to the wall. I'll explain this in a sec. One of the dominant uh, pictures for life in the Bible, you see this in Galatians, Philippians, in First Timothy, you see this in, in Hebrews, one of the dominant pictures of life and analogies for life is it's a journey, but it's also a race, okay? It's a race, not a sprint, like a real short race, but it's a marathon. And so the, the writers of Scripture are saying, hey, as you go through life, remember, it's a race, and you've got to pace yourself because... It's a long, long race. I don't know if um, any of you have ever run a marathon before. Anyone run a marathon before? Okay. Uh, OK, good. Um, well, I have not run one, but four of our harvesters have run a marathon before, and I talked to some of them and asked them, hey, um, can, you, can you talk about the experience? Because I've always heard about this experience of hitting the wall when you run. Has anyone heard of that phrase before, hitting a wall? Okay, a few of us have. Okay, there's a wall that you run into, not a physical, well, not like a, a, a wall like the Berlin Wall or... Uh, a wall like that, but it's a wall that you hit um, in your physical being. You, you feel like, oh, I can't go on any further. Let me explain through the words of one of our friends who has run a marathon. I know a, a, um, at least in our morning service there are a couple people who had said they'd run a marathon and a couple others had as well uh, here. So this is what they said about this wall. Hitting the wall uh, is what the body does when it's depleted of its energy stores, This process happens almost instantaneously. The only real warning sign for me is that I start feeling a little hungry. One moment I'm fine. Next thing I know, I feel like someone sucked all the strength out of me. My legs feel like jello. I feel like I'm dragging my feet through mud. I feel famished, lightheaded, even sleepy. Basically feels like everything within me is just screaming at me to stop. When it happens, all I want to do is stop, eat, and sleep. Usually, sleeping is not an option, so I try to find nourishment, which will help me recover some of that strength almost instantly. The times when I have had to run or bike after hitting a wall probably some of the most physically and mentally challenging things I've had to go through. Sometimes I can muster up motivation to fight through it, but no matter how much motivation I have, I feel like I'm still moving like a turtle. Has anyone ever experienced that when you were running? I have before. I, it, it wasn't in a marathon, but I, I ran a winter park uh, two-mile race, and I, after about 90 seconds, I hit what I felt like was a wall. I said, "I can't oh my gosh, this must be what everyone talks about. This is a wall, I've got to quit. And I, I stopped on the side of the road. I threw up, and I gained energy to keep on running the race. But I experienced the wall before <laughs> when it comes to running a race. I don't know if you have, but if you ask long-distance runner, they'll say, yeah, sometime between mile 18 and mile 20, you hit this wall where, I mean, the, the language that this person used is instantaneously. One more, 17 miles, he's running, he's doing fine, and then at mile 18, he just feels like eh, it just hits you. He said, it's like someone was sucking All of the strength out of me and everything within me was screaming at me to stop. It was one of the most physically and mentally challenging things I've ever had to do in my life. If you ask most long-distance runners or even sometimes short-distance runners like me, we will tell you that there is such thing as a runner's wall as you go through the race. And if you ask people who've been running the distance in the spiritual life, They will also tell you that there is such thing as a wall spiritually. And what we see throughout Scripture is that God brings every one of his children to an experience of the wall. What does that mean? It's those times where you just want to quit everything about the Christian life. Anyone been in that? I just want to quit. For whatever reason it is, for some of you, it's because of this anxiety that cripples you, and you're wondering, man, is it worth it to keep on running? It's depression that people say, you just got to go outside, you got to exercise, you got to smile, you got to get vitamin D, whatever it is, and no one seems to understand, but you and everything within you says, I just want to give up. I don't. I just want to quit. Maybe for some of you, it's at the news of someone's passing away, and it's Yesterday you were fine, today you wake up, you got a text message, you got a phone call, and everything about your life has changed. It's these times in life where you hit a wall, where everything within you screams, is it worth it to continue living, this, running this race of faith? I don't know if you've been there before. Again, if you've been running the race long enough, there will be moments like this along the journey that hits you where it seems like someone's just sucking the strength out of you. Maybe it's when you come back from the doctor and you get the doctor's notice that something is not right with you and you feel that and you're like, God, we prayed about this. I had my house church pray. I had all of my family members. I had all of my youth ministry praying and, and this is the news that I get. It's those moments in life where you just feel like, man, maybe for the first time in my life, God is not big enough to fix this problem. Have you been to that kind of a place before? Where your faith doesn't seem to be able to push you through the challenges of life. Where the questions that you have are infinitely more than the answers that you have. And the answers that you have don't feel like they make any sense anymore. Where you're questioning everything that you know. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the dream or, or, or some kind of a desire that you feel like you realize now it's never going to happen. The school said no for the third time. The job said no. The girl said no. The guy said no. The doctor said, no, whatever it is, but you just feel like, man, at at this point in my life, I can't, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know how to go forward anymore. I don't know if you've ever been to a place like that. Maybe it's when you get let go from your job or when you get uh, evicted from your home or the, the, the last drip of savings runs out and you don't know what's going to happen in, in the next month. I, I don't know what the wall is, but it's that kind of place where not, not only do you, do you feel like your faith is no longer working, but as you pray to God, you're singing the songs, you come, at least I've got Sunday, you come and you sing the songs of church, but nothing seems to connect with your heart. And no matter what you do, you're reading the word and it just feels like it's falling on a hardened heart. And as you're praying, it just feels like your words are falling beneath to the ground and never reaching above even your head, let alone to the heavens. just feels like everything that you're doing, everything that you're doing, all you're being met with is that screaming, pulsating silence of God. Have you been to that place before? Because this is the experience of every child of God as we go through this journey of life. God brings us to these walls, and sometimes on many an occasion. This is where John the Baptist is. This is where John the Baptist is. He's given his life to telling people about Jesus, that he's the one. And yet all that got him to was it got him a one-way ticket to prison as he's awaiting the lopping off of his head from King Herod. He's wondering, I gave my life to this. Think think about this. He left everything behind, whatever everything was, but as as far as we know, he comes onto the scene telling people that there's a one coming. His name is Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, but he's coming. And the way that he just set himself apart for the work of God was he stopped shopping at the malls. He stopped shopping at, at Ross and Target and Steinmart. Instead, he just wore camel's hair. Like, that's what he wore. He said, God, I've given up everything in order to follow you. As we finish this Daniel fast today, I'm, um, I think I'm okay. I'm okay with the foods that I've been eating. I haven't been craving too much. But what I did get was I got really tired of eating the same tasting foods all the time. I'm ready to eat something of a different texture than avocado and guacamole. I'm waiting to eat something that tastes like, that, that's chewy like meat. I'm waiting to eat those things. But the reason we did it was we did it for Jesus, right? I hope we did. Here's John the Baptist he said, I've given up everything. Okay, go have your Daniel fast. Try the John the Baptist fast. I'm eating wild locusts and honey. That's all, locusts and wild honey. That's my diet. You try. Maybe next year we try the John the Baptist diet. That's what he did. That's what he was eating. That's his way of saying, Jesus, I'm all in for you, everything I am, because I want to be set apart for you. I've given everything for you. And where does it lead him? It leads him to the dungeon. And maybe for the first time in his life, it's like if you're really the one who is going to set me free, set us free from oppression, then why are the oppressors putting me in jail? If you're really the one to bring freedom and liberation to the captives, then why am I captive? He's said, like, guys, come to me and, and, and go ask Jesus, was he the one or is there somebody else? Have I, have I given my life to the wrong one? And maybe you're asking that question too. Maybe there's another religion, or maybe there's a different way of life. Maybe there's something better than Christianity, because if it's Christianity, then why does my life look like this? This is the question that we ask when we come to the wall. It's infertility. It's the inability to do the things that we want to do. It's the it's brokenness of, of, of dreams that we thought, as, as long as I have these things in my life, then I can worship God, but none of these things are coming to pass, and all it looks like is we're locked captive with no key in a prison cell of our own making, or if we're honest, of God's making. Here's John the Baptist. He's saying, have I given my life to the right one? And what Jesus says, he says, you go back and tell John. Go back and tell John what he does not see right now. Because this is the experience of every child of God As you look through Scripture, it's Abraham when God says, I'm going to make you into a great man, a father of many nations, and then for 20-some years, he's infertile. This doesn't make sense, God. How does this make any sense? That you promised these things, but I can't even get pregnant. I'm 100 years old now. How does this make any sense? For the first time in his life, maybe, the challenges that he was going through was bigger than the God that he worshipped. How does this make any sense? It's, it, it's Job when in a day he loses everything that he Everything was going great one day. The very next day he loses all of his children, loses all of his property. Everything falls apart and crumbles to the ground on him. It, it's David when God said, hey, you're gonna, after he kills Goliath, Saul gets jealous, the king, get, king gets jealous, and so David's on the run for 10 years, for 15 years, hiding out in different caves. He's like, how long, oh Lord, until I can finally be free and be the king of my people? It's these questions that we begin to ask where our knowledge of God no longer, there's no categories for, for the experiences that we're facing in life. This is the experience of the wall that maybe some of you are facing right now and you're wondering, where is God in the midst of this? I have prayed for years and it's still the same. In fact, it's gotten worse. Where is God? I've given myself to faithfully serving him, but I'm wondering now if it's worth it to continue to go on. If God really is who he says he is, then why does my life look like this? And why did this happen to my family? Why did this happen to my kids? Why did this happen to my parents? Why did this happen to my grandparents? None of these things seem to make sense when we come to the wall. Maybe worst of all, it seems like the voice of God is nowhere to be heard. This is not a a wall of my, that I faced, um, but it's something that my friend went through in December 2013. I remember because I I posted something of this, at least the first part of it. Um, It was a December 2013, it was a Saturday night, um, about 9 or 10 p.m., and I was looking over the next day's sermon, and maybe to kind of break up the... uh, I don't know what I was feeling, but I decided to, to get my phone and play a game called Words with Friends. Anyone know Words with Friends? So I was playing Words with Friends, and I played this. I, I played my turn and threw some letters on the board and got like a 45-point word. Yeah, I was so excited. And then the new letters began to shuffle. And as the words came up, uh, no joke, um, you can go to my December 2013 Facebook feed and you'll see it. The seven letters said P R A Y. I-W-E. It doesn't make sense, but it said, pray, I, we. <laughs> so I said, wow. As I'm looking over this sermon, playing words with friends, I think God is telling me that I should go pray. And so December 2013, I, I, I screenshotted that words, uh, that screen, and I threw it up and I said, without rearranging, looking at my sermon, this is what God said to me. Pray, I, we. I'm going to go pray. Join me in prayer. Let's pray for tomorrow's worship, anyone who sees this message. About an hour later, I got a message, and Facebook messenger from uh, a sister that I had gone to college with, who had married a friend of mine from my days in middle school and high school and college. That um, a friend of mine, a couple years earlier, um, he was a musician, traveling musician, toured to many places, but while he was on tour in um, in Europe, uh, he... He'd He died, basically. He died. He went missing and he died. And so um, he left behind his wife and a daughter who was not yet two years old. And as you can imagine, it it rocked her world, my friend. And for the longest time, um, and still to this day, it's not easy. Um, It's not easy every day waking up to this repeated nightmare of the news that, and and um, this fellow probably, for anyone who knew him, he was the nicest, nicest person that you could meet. Always kind, always laughing, always self-effacing, uh, incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, uh, wrote for ESPN, but still, you know, it was just, he, he loved the Lord and he loved his family. And um, after I, I, I threw that up on Facebook, um, this is the message that she sent to me in the midst of the wall that she was experiencing. She said, wow. Just have to say, you are lucky. I've asked God to speak to me a million times since my husband died. Weeping and begging, sometimes on the floor. I've got nothing at all. I guess all this time, I should have tried playing words with friends. That's life at the wall. Where you're just crying out to God, it just seems like he's nowhere. Nowhere to be found. I remember being at a retreat. It was at a a hotel, adults retreat, not our church, but some other folks. And I remember being in a room um, and, and talking to this man, 30 years old, and he's, he's, he's weeping. He'd been married for, for, for many years to his wife, um, who was working in the education system, and everyone told her from the time she was in college growing up, oh, my gosh, you're going to be the best mother. You're going to be the best mom ever. Oh, my gosh, you're going to be, you're so good with kids. You're so good with kids. But for years, they couldn't have kids. And she got doctor's work, blood work, lab work, all this stuff done, and she checked out fine. And so he went to the doctor, and he found out that medically he was unable to do what was necessary in order for a baby to be born. And so he was telling us a, a, a couple people, pastors, in the midst of the, the rawness of that pain, he said it's, it's one thing if it was her, like, but to know that because of my failings whatever it was, my inability, that her greatest dreams would never be able to be realized. He said, she's fine. She's, you know, she's okay. We're going to move forward. But the worst thing and the hardest thing is that night after night after night after night as we pray, and he he was a pastor, he said as we pray, the only thing we're met with is just the silence of God. Feel like God is nowhere to be found. Have you ever experienced life at a wall like this before? If you have, if you are, I want to move to the second thought, but if you haven't, then you need to know that this is the experience that God brings every one of his children. This is not like, oh, I'm stuck in traffic, this is the wall that I'm facing. No, it's not that. It's not like, oh, I went to Popeye's Chicken, I had a coupon for a free chicken sandwich, and I waited in line for an hour, and it's gone. It's not that, ki- not that kind of suffering. This is the kind of stuff where your world has fallen apart. And you don't have the words, you don't have the language, you don't have the, uh, the, the spiritual vocabulary to be able to put into words what's going on. And you just just feel like giving everything up. The second thing that we see is God uses the wall to purge and to purify your love for him. Understand this, that God is using that wall to purge you and to purify your love for him. Remember, most of us love God from the outside, but he wants to access and purify the deeper parts of us in order that we would love from the inside out. A radical kind of love, the kind of love that many in the world have not seen. If you're going through a wall, if you're facing things that no one understands, if you're facing things that no one one seems to be able to track with me, if you're going through things that you feel like no one's gone through before, it's because God wants to do in you things that no one has seen before. The question is, what will you do when you're confronted with, when you're staring, when you're face down in front of the wall, what will you do? In that time, in that moment, in that space. Here's what Jesus is saying because John's question is, what am I supposed to do? Do I go to someone else? Do I run from this wall? Do I dig a hole and Do I bury myself? Do I go to someone else or do I remain at this wall? What do I do? Here's what Jesus says. He says, go back and tell him what 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 he doesn't see. Blind, see, lame, walk, leprosy, cured, deaf, hear, dead, raised, good news, preach the poor. He says, even though you don't see it, John, this is what's happening. And even though you don't feel it, John, this is the reality. You have not given yourself to the wrong one. Keep on going. Blessed is the one, the man, who does not fall away on account of me. He says, don't leave the wall. Don't fall away. Don't abandon your faith. I'm here with you. And even when you don't see me, I'm working. Even when you don't feel me, I'm working. Just stay the course because there's something that God is doing in the midst of your wall that you don't know and that you don't see, but he's there, and soon and very soon you will see what he's doing. You're going through a wall right now, and it hasn't made sense to you, and no one's given you answers. See, the challenging thing about this is that God will bring every one of us to the wall, but it's not something we talk about very often. Jesus is saying, stay there because there's something that I'm doing in that place. I've said this before and I'll say it again, that many church-going people, in other words, many people who see church as a place we come rather than the people that we are, many people who come to church on Sundays are one tragedy, one disaster, one wall away from abandoning your faith. One failed operation, one bad diagnosis, one untimely death. We are one, many of us are one of those things away from abandoning our faith. Jesus says, Blessed is one who does not fall away on account of me. You see this in in, in Judas. Judas had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, got to the very end of it all, and then when he began to realize that maybe Jesus isn't fitting in my categories that I had built for what Jesus ought to be, maybe there's no explanation for what he's doing now, he said, okay, I'm I'm gonna abandon ship and for 30 pieces of silver, he sold Jesus out. But if it only waited four more days, If only he had waited four more days, he would have seen the end of the story. Many of us are like Judas. We're on the edge, potentially, of what God wants to do, but we're one tragedy, one hardship, one unanswered prayer, one, I can't figure this out, away from abandoning our faith. But Jesus is telling us to stay the course and to stay before the wall because God's doing something in you that you don't know and that you don't see. Sometimes I, I, I talk to people like at funerals. Sometimes it's a church member. Sometimes it's someone who used to go to church. Sometimes it's someone who, who, who used to come to our church, but they don't. And as I'm comforting or hugging or, or, or meeting with the bereaved people, oftentimes they say something like this, Pastor, I'm, I'm so sorry. This is a real wake-up call to me. I'm going to start coming out to church again. But when the dust settles and people go back to their homes after coming to the funeral and they're left alone to try and figure out what's going on, the hard truth is that I rarely see any of these people ever coming to church. For whatever reason, I I don't know what it is, but for some people it's just we cannot figure out how this could have happened if God really is who he said he is. And a great number of people who claim to be Christians who love Jesus are one hardship away from walking away from faith in Jesus Christ because they don't understand that God brings every one of his children to this kind of a wall because there's a work that he wants to do in that place. You're one breakup. You're one divorce paper. You're one of these things away. There have been times in in my life, if I'm completely honest, where I've wanted to walk away from God. I didn't have the courage to do it, but the temptation certainly crossed my mind. God often speaks to me through his word, and he speaks to me often through songs. And this one song that I always play back in my mind when it's like, okay, okay, if I give up faith in Jesus, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? This song says, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. And I think to myself, if I leave Jesus, where am I going to go? What better God do I have? Who else can I turn to? And I realize, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. I'd play the part of the fool. It's not the ones who who keep on banging at the wall thinking God's gonna be there, but when we don't see, that's not the fool. The fool is the one who says, because I can't see him, he must not be there, and we walk away from God. What is God trying to do in us at the wall? When you hear that your parent is sick and it's terminal, when you hear the news that someone that you love is not gonna make it past the weekend, When you get the news of the the last thing you want, what is God trying to do? He's trying to purge you so that Jesus can be your all in all. You see, you don't know that God is all that you need until he's all that you have. And unless he's all that you have, you don't know that he's all that you need. And God's purging us and he's weaning us to purify a love for him within our hearts so that we love him and him only so that we can say indeed with all of our hearts, you are my all in all. I don't need anything else in this life. Christ is enough for me. That's what God is doing in you as you come to the wall, that you would believe that. What do we need to be purged of? There's at least three things that I just just want to help us to see. Maybe God wants to purge you because there's things in your life that compete with a love for Jesus in your heart. Like you love God, you lift your hands, you close your eyes, you do the right thing when people are looking above the surface. But beneath the surface, there's a bunch of other things that you love. God might be purging you of these things. Maybe it's your reputation on social media. Maybe it's your reputation in general. Maybe it's a love for things of this world that God's purging you of. When God said, Abraham, hey, okay, I'm gonna give you your son, here's your son. Now, now Isaac has grown up, and God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, to me. Again, that doesn't make any sense. God, you said that through him, you're gonna make me the father to many, but I can't have kids now, not, at, at, I mean, I'm, I'm old as dirt. Sarah's old as dirt. What, am I, what are we going to do now? And you're telling me to give up my, my, my son? Because it was possible for Abraham to love Isaac more than he loved God. And God was saying, I want to purge you. If you're going to be the father of many nations, then your faith has got to be the kind of faith that's pure, that loves me above all else. Uh, One of our house church shepherds, Matthew, he has an uncle who, uh, many of you know his story. He was, uh, in for 919 days, he was imprisoned in North Korea, sentenced to hard labor. He was a pastor. There's so much that just inspires me about the story, but when he came out of prison after uh, three years, hard labor, got sick, tuberculosis, all kinds of things. Um, He went back home, the first time his wife saw him, (coughs) his wife said, You've been in the most dangerous, darkest regime in the world for over 900 days. You were in solitary confinement. But you look so good. You look like you haven't aged a bit. You don't look like you've been through a single day of stress. Why? And he said, God taught me the habit of giving thanks. So every day I just gave thanks to God for everything that I could. And he had a list, all these things that he thanked God for. And and, and this is what he said, like number six on his list. He said, I thank God that I was in prison in North Korea because God purified me of pride and greed and the impurities that were in my heart. It took that in order for God to purge me of those things. God brings us to a wall because he wants to purge us of anything within us that competes with him for supremacy within our hearts. He also wants to purge us from this way of thinking that loves the blessings of God more than we love God himself. Have you fallen in love with what God gives to you more than you've fallen in love with God? Have you fallen in love with the idea that if I pray to God and give my life to him, that he's gonna bless me with all this stuff Have you become so in love with what God has given to you that instead of every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise, you took every blessing he poured out and you used it to elevate the praise of your name in the eyes of people? When God blessed Job with 10 children and all kinds of riches, The enemy, Satan, said to God, the only reason Job worships you still is because you've given him all these things. If you take these things away from him, he's not going to worship you. He's not going to love you. And so begins the true story of a man named Job who was brought to the wall, everything taken from him so that he would learn to love God more than he loved the gifts of God in his life. And if we're completely, if I'm completely honest, man, I... I'm tempted every day of my life to love what God gives to me more than I love God himself. I'm tempted to love my church, my children, my family, my friends, my parents, and my brother. I'm tempted to love these things more than I, to love my comfort, to love my home, to love my security. It's a constant fight within my own heart when I look at my kids sometimes to be reminded that, God, these are not my children. Emmanuel, Elijah, Elise, these are not my kids, God. These are your children. You have entrusted them to me for as long as I have the privilege to be called their daddy. You've entrusted them to me, but they're not mine, they're yours. I need to present them back to you and say, God, I did my best to raise them as your kids, to be the essence of God, in their lives, that whenever they look at me, they hear me talk, they feel my touch, that they feel the love of me. That's That's my calling in life. They're not my children, as if they, you owe me something because they're not who I want them to be. These are your children. I fight in my heart because I need to know that these are, these are God's kids, not my own. And I don't want to love them more than I love Jesus, and I want them to love me more than they love Jesus. And so I'm telling them all the time, I love you guys, but God loves you more. Daddy's going to fail, and Daddy's going to go one day, but God will always remain with you. These are yours, God. I don't want to love them. I don't want to love Olive more than I love you. And that's hard. And I think that's sometimes why I need to come to the wall to be reminded that God wants all of me. Every part of me. He wants all of my life. And he wants all of yours also as you follow him. The third thing that God is weaning us from as we come to the wall is he wants to wean us of the feelings that we have that we associate with loving God. Because a lot of times what we want more than God himself is we want feelings of God. When I sing the song, God, it's not enough for me just to sing it honestly. I need to feel something in my heart. I need to be moved in my emotions. I need to be riled up. I need to have religious affections. I need to have something in me that tells me that you're there. It's not enough for me to just worship you for who you are. That's the way a lot of us are. And God's wanting to wean us of these feelings, even when you don't feel like it to know that I'm there with you, even when it doesn't seem like he's listening to your songs to know that he's there with you. Is that enough for you? Even when you sing the songs that you don't like or you don't, they don't sing the songs that you do like, will you still worship God? Because what God is doing in you, what God is doing in me every time we come to the wall is he's purging us of anything beneath the surface that keeps us from loving him with everything that is within us. Because, you see, that's how you win the game. Again, Jesus, God, our Father, doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. That's why he's saying, I want you to be purified so that you can give all of you for all of me. And that's where you begin To really live. And every time we come to a wall, see this throughout scripture, every time we come to a wall, the end result of that wall is we begin to see God in ways that we've never seen him before. Abraham gives up his son, lays him on the altar, about to offer him to the Lord, and God says, stop, in the thicket there's a ram and Abraham says, on the mountain of the Lord, I see now that the Lord will provide. And he sees a revelation of God unlike he'd seen prior. Job loses everything. He says, "In uh, though my flesh it be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see God. And through it all, through it all, at the end of all of that encounter, Job says, holy cow. God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My eyes have seen you. I can see clearly now. The stuff is gone. And I can worship you with all of my heart. Every time you come to all, if you're going through something, you feel like I've never felt this kind of pain, this kind of silence before. On the flip side of that, you need to understand that God is about to do something in you that you've never seen before also. That God is doing something in you. If you've never faced this before, God is going to lead you to something that you've never seen before. Because that's the work he does at the wall. And I cannot think of any wall higher, darker, more (laughs) faith-robbing than the wall that the disciples and the people of God must have faced at the cross that Good Friday many years ago. Not just any cross, but the cross at Golgotha, where for six hours in the day, darkness fell upon the earth. And the man who people thought was the Messiah, the Savior, the King that we will follow in the glory was crucified on a murderous, torturous tree, the kind of which was spoken of in Scripture said, cursed is anyone who hangs on that tree. And as people walked away, they would have been completely justified because in that place when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was silence. Nobody who stood there at the cross would have looked at that and said, yep, that's the, That's the pit for all, for all time, people are going to wear that cross as a sign around their neck to show the reality of God. What happened? What they thought was a dead end was actually the most wide-open doorway so that anyone, anyone could enter in. It was in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of the darkness, that one man spoke the words that the rest of us would utter for all time. A centurion who did not believe comes to the wall, and he sees all these things happen, and then he says, surely, this is the Son of God. At the cross, we begin to see... Jesus in ways that they began to saw him in ways that they see him in ways that they've never seen him before. And every time God brings us to a wall, it's because he wants to show us a revelation of himself unlike anything that we've seen before. Maybe we've heard about it. Maybe we hear testimonies. Maybe we hear preaching about it, but we've never seen it. How does God reach and purify the 90% that nobody sees? He brings us to a wall. And every intention of the heart of God is for your good in that place. And when you can't feel him, you know that he's there. When you can't see him, you know that he's working. You can trust that. Jesus says, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. But hold on. Hold on to the cross. In the midst of the darkness, hold on to him because he's there. He'll guide you through it. And on the flip side, on the other side, you'll see things of God that you've never seen before, and a lot of times the person you are on the other side is unrecognizable. God wants to do that in us. I know it's painful, I know we don't want it, but God's gonna lead every single one of us there. When we come to that place that we'd see him, embrace him, and let him change and purify us so that we can love him with all of our hearts and we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's pray together. If you're at a wall... This morning, can you pray to the Lord? Lord, give me faith to go through this wall and to see you. And if you're not at a wall right now, can you pray two things? One, for those who are, that their faith would not fail. And two, Lord, when the wall comes in my life, God, help me. To cling to you, to not run away, to see it for what it is, and to walk with you through the wall till I see you with eyes of faith in new ways. Let's pray for a minute like that together, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue on. But let's pray honestly, earnestly. Prepare for the wall now if you're not there. Pray that God would give you strength at the wall if you're there. Let's pray for a couple moments, and now pray for us. But let's go to the Lord in honest faith-filled prayers, knowing why he leads us to these things. Let's pray together. we confess that a lot of times we walked away from you because we thought it was too hard thank you that you did not Jesus walk away from us when it was too hard when we were too hard when the cross was too hard thank you that you did not walk away you stayed faithful, obedient, showing us that whatever wall we face, it's not because you don't love us, and it's not because you don't care, and it's not because you can't, but it's because you're doing something in us that could not happen any other way. So, Lord, give us faith to say that, Jesus, you are enough for us. All that we need are all in all. Give us strength for those who are going through the wall now. Lord, give your grace. And Lord, give us future grace and faith in that future grace to those who aren't there yet but who will face it. Help us to batten down our hatches and to be strong in you so that we might live for your honor. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first pray these things in Jesus' name.